and we are live. Welcome back to the Victory Three Podcast. I am extremely excited for today's episode. We have a very special guest, uh, Ben Fox. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, it's always nice when somebody says I'm special, so I appreciate it. <laughs> we like to make all of our guests uh, feel special here. So, uh, Ben, truly excited uh, for this for this conversation that we're about to have. Uh, for those who might not know, uh, Ben, you were born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, you graduated in 09 from Claremont McKenna, uh, which is a small college out in California. Uh, you've been covering sports betting since 2010. Uh, you were the vice president of digital content at VEASAN from 2020 to 2023. Uh, you were at ESPN Chalk from 2014 to 2020. You write for USA Today's FTW. And I actually pulled up a quote um, from the CEO of VEASAN at the time of your hiring that I think uh, serves to kind of encapsulate who you are, um, you know, as a professional in, in the sports betting ecosystem. So the quote reads something like this. Anyone who has followed the sports betting industry over the past several years is well aware of Ben and his great work. He was one of the architects behind ESPN's sports betting coverage and continues to be one of the most respected and prolific voices in sports betting. Adding Ben to the team will further strengthen both our editorial voice and our position as the most credible source in the sports betting space. Ben, you also worked for ESPN Insider. Uh, you guided their strategy and content, as well as overseeing NFL, college football, and soccer coverage. Uh, you've covered nearly every sport, including 10 NFL drafts, which I uh, found to be fascinating. I have some questions there. Uh, and you planned and executed content with some of ESPN's biggest talents, including Chris Berman, uh, Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, Herm Edwards, Bill Barnwell, uh, Matthew Berry, Adam Schefter, the list goes on and on. Wow. I mean, uh, quite uh, quite a uh, storied history, I guess you could say. But Ben, I wanted to take you back to Brooklyn. Um, and so lead me through kind of growing up, your childhood, were you always interested in sports? And then how did you make that jump from Brooklyn all the way to California? Yeah, well, first I need you as my uh, PR agent. I think that was uh, quite quite the intro. But yeah, I think growing up, um, I was always kind of in and around sports, and generally, uh, generally playing kind of every sport that I could. So whether that was soccer or tennis or baseball, uh, tried to play a little golf, but it's a little tougher in New York City. There's not a ton of public golf courses available or, or easy to get to. Um, and really kind of found soccer and baseball as, as the main ones, was on a travel soccer team and a travel baseball team, which is not easy to do it at the same time, especially when you've, you know, there are weekends where it's like one tournament's in Delaware for baseball and one tournament's in Connecticut for soccer. Uh, and you kind of have to make some of those, some of those choices. But it was just always something that I was good at. Um, and I think was really good as well for me in terms of kind of socialization and growing up in Brooklyn around a ton of different people and ton of different uh, classes and races and socioeconomic statuses, just kind of things and experiences you wouldn't otherwise have uh, growing up in a different place. So I think sports is really an equal playing field. Everyone's, you know, you're all working together as a team to try and win the game in the best way that you can. And, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice and all, all of these things. Um, I think it's just something that was always, always fun and allowed me to kind of make friends in a way uh, that was kind of easier than just, I guess, randomly at school uh, as well. Um, so I was always kind of in and around sports. Uh, I ended up at, at Claremont McKenna in California, um, just kind of on chance. Um, I only applied because my dad had gone there I, a long time ago when it was a men's college in the uh, 70s. And it's a consortium, so there are five schools, which are basically right across the street from each other. Uh, I ended up applying. It was the only school west, I think, of, you know, probably New York that I applied to and ended up going out for the mid-students day, kind of saw the scene and the palm trees, um, the campus, and said, yeah, I think I can do this, having uh, been born and raised in the Northeast, so was really happy that I did that, had a great college experience. Uh, it was Division three, so you don't get necessarily the, the D1 experience that you might have at, um, you know, a Syracuse or a Michigan or another uh, of those types of schools um, that also has high academic standards. But 
it was it was the best decision I could have made and so happy that I was able to uh, go out there and and have that experience and then eventually uh, come back home afterwards and kind of start my career and uh, back on the East Coast. So how did how did sports betting um, come up? Like how did at, at what point were you like, you know what, maybe I'd like to dabble in, in this industry and maybe potentially even make a career out of it? Because I think, you know, back when you graduated in 09, even when you started in, in 2010, I think the sports betting industry back then was vastly different from what it is now. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, unlucky enough to graduate in kind of the middle of the recession. I remember in the in uh, senior year, I guess in the fall, the career services kind of sent out an email that was like, we're not saying you should go to graduate school, but we're just saying it's not a terrible idea. If you've ever considered it, you might want to think about it. Um, so I graduated in, in 2009. Um, I didn't have a, a job. So like most New York City kids, I moved back home. A lot of New York City kids who have jobs also moved back home um, just to save on rent. And kind of worked for some startups, but was really uh, hoping to get back in. I'd had an internship that I'd been lucky enough to get at ESPN the magazine, um, and ESPNTheMag.com, which was kind of a a precursor uh, to the magazine's presence on ESPN.com, as well as ESPN Insider. And so I was always kind of hoping I'd be able to catch back on with them and eventually later on in kind of late 2009, early 2010, um, I was able to do that. And kind of one of the things that they're working on uh, under Chad Millman, who was uh, then at the uh, magazine, and I think he was a senior deputy editor then before he was EIC, was sports betting. And he'd kind of written this book called The Odds. He was writing five days a week for a blog on the website. And it was kind of there was clearly some audience, but it also was buried. No one else in ESPN cared about or was looking at sports betting. So it was kind of Chad's canvas to do whatever he wanted to do. And they basically needed somebody to help edit it. And I was lucky enough to be there and raise my hand and, and got along with Chad and was editing his podcast as well. So that was kind of the initial start into sports betting was doing that. And what was attractive to it, I think, for me was just it kind of appealed to I, I was econ psych in college. I think sports betting is just about that with the cross section of economics and psychology uh, and kind of the human condition. And so sports betting was just really interesting. It seemed like it was this different language. Uh, everybody had their own cool nickname and it was kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod, right? Like Al Michaels is talking about the total at the end of the game. And if you know, you know, and Twitter wasn't really a thing. And so back then it was very, very different. Whereas now you see all of these highlights, all the sportsbook accounts are immediately tweeting them out with what the odds were. If there's any island game, island game being like a Monday night football, Thursday night football, Sunday night football, and something at the end affects the spread or the total um, like we saw, I guess, last night um, in the Ravens-Chargers game with a late touchdown, everybody's on it. That certainly wasn't the case in 2010. Uh, there were some people on Twitter. There were, you know, some blogs, some sites, but it was much more buried because the only place you could legally do it was in Nevada. And so, sure, there were online sites that still exist today, but it was just a very, a very different world. Um, so that was really kind of the initial start of it. And it was so something I was interested in. I think once you kind of view sports, biz, uh, sports betting through that prism, you, you view sports through that prism, it's kind of tough to go back to just who's going to win the game, who's going to lose the game. Um, it's just kind of a, another angle, uh, much like with analytics to view sports. And so that's kind of the way I started to look at it and, it just kind of grew from there. Do you think, um, so you talk about viewing, um, you know, the, the sport from a different lens. Do you think with the emergence of sports betting that that has ultimately helped or hindered, I guess, the final product and the experience for the fans? So I think that there's definitely, we haven't reached oversaturation of sports betting content, but there's definitely a lot that is getting up there. 
I think that it's difficult in a sense because if you're a sports journalist, right, generally you go to school for it, right? You might go to Northwestern or Syracuse or Indiana and you get your degree in that. And that's kind of the basis of your qualifications in the same way. I'm not a doctor. I didn't go to medical school. I don't have those qualifications. I didn't do a residency, et cetera. There aren't really any qualifications to be a quote unquote professional sports better. Now, you need to make money doing it and it should be your only solitary source of income. Those are kind of the broad strokes. Um, But in terms of otherwise kind of the people who are viewed as professionals, it's a very small list. I think if you looked on Twitter, it seemed like it's a much, much bigger list. Uh, And that's part of, I think, where, you know, as we can talk about with where the industry potentially is going, I think that's some of the dangers potentially of social media and TikTok and Instagram and uh, Twitter slash X um, in terms of the level of people's claimed level of expertise versus kind of their actual level of, of expertise, right? And are they doing this? Is this their sole source of income? If, are they not paying rent if they're losing these bets? Are they even placing these bets that they're putting on these social media platforms? All of those things. So I don't think that it's hindered the product uh, of sports. I think that that's why we haven't seen, for example, you know, you're going to have Monday Night Football with the Vikings and the Bears, there's only one broadcast, right? And there might be the Manning cast, but it's not a betting focused kind of uh, alternate stream. There has been some experimentation with that, but it's not weaved into the main broadcast in that way. If people don't want to talk about betting or hear about betting, they don't have to. It's certainly a lot more prominent on social media and in articles and other places but I think there is still that separation in the traditional broadcasts. Um, I think on social media, it's a different story, right? In terms of seeing people complain about parlays or complaining to athletes, they didn't hit this three-pointer, those types of things. But I don't think it's appreciably changed the sports kind of products that we see on the field in too many ways. Yeah, I, I guess I ask because... Um... There's been talk. I mean, I feel like there's always talk, you know, talks about this subject specifically, but, you know, when it comes to the integrity of the game. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I think I heard you on a separate podcast talking about how uh, so Adam Silver had released this op ed back in 2014, basically calling for the legalization of sports betting, you know, ba- essentially saying, hey, it's already happening. Right. I think in 2014, he had cited um, that there's estimates that about $430 billion were being wagered yearly, um, you know, just on sports. And so, hey, let's legalize this. Let's do it the right way. Let's bring this, you know, to light. But let's also maintain the integrity of the game. And I think for the NBA specifically, um, I have to imagine that that whole, you know, Tim Donahue scandal, um, you know, from the early 2000s um, probably was not Adam Silver's mind at the time. And trying to figure out how can we legalize this, but also maintain that integrity of the game. So I guess how, how do you view that whole, you know, kind of issue when it comes to the integrity? And then I guess I'll just say one last thing. There's been certain refs um, and I see on Twitter all the time. So like Scott Foster versus Chris Paul has been like a highly cited, um, you know, battle where I think Chris Paul in his career is, oh, and something against Scott Foster when, when Scott Foster uh, officiates his games. There was one um, uh, for the Eagles game. I think when when Sean Hockley is is the ref, they get called. You know, not too many penalties get called against the Eagles. So there's always like these conspiracies that it's happening again with these refs. I guess what's your stance on all of this? Is there any merit to it, or is it just people grasping for straws? So, well, definitely a lot there. Uh, I, yeah. I would say first on on Adam Silver. So we were launching ESPN Chalk. Uh, we launched, I think, in August 2014, which was the sports betting vertical on ESPN.com. And then luckily enough, Adam Silver, a month or two later, released that op-ed in the New York Times. I want to say it was in October. Um, and he his point was basically just people are, are betting on sports illegally already, right? So why not regulate this? He had suggested a federal regulation, which was always going to be difficult 
currently it's state by state basis. Each state gets to decide whether or not they want to legalize sports betting. But his point was basically this is already going on and it's actually safer for these multitude of reasons if we legalize it and have some oversight. And so part of those reasons and what we've seen in terms of companies like U.S. Integrity and Sport Radar and Bet Genius, other, other ones like that, is that there's a back end now that you can see basically a lot of the money funneling into sports books, right? And so who is betting on what, at what time, with what amount, in what state, all of these different things from what account. That's why when there isn't, you know, to take one example of the Alabama betting coach in college baseball, if all of a sudden in a small college baseball game, someone is trying to bet $100,000 on one team, that's going to raise a flag, raise a red flag. Whereas previously, if they're betting on an offshore site, unless the site raises that in some capacity or catches it, it, it goes through and then it's up to that site basically, you know, to pay it out or to, there's not much more that can be done. So that's why there's a lot more kind of checks and balances and they're able to see some of that potential activity um, beforehand or see if something's raising a red flag, something like that. So those are some of the benefits of, of legalization as well as not betting on credit, right? That's something where if you're at in your local neighborhood bookie and you bet $500 on a game that you may or may not have and you lose, and then he gives you $500 of credit and then you bet that and you lose. Well, now I couldn't pay the first 500. Now I'm down a thousand. How do I get that back? Well, now I, he gives me a thousand dollars to bet because then I'll be back even. Well, I lose that. Now I'm down $2,000. I couldn't pay the first 500, right? So that's where people start to get into uh, more problem gambling and betting with money they don't have. With all legal sports books, you have to deposit money, right? It's money that you have in your account. So those are some of the checks and kind of the benefits of legalization. In terms of referees, you know, the Tim Donahue scandal is a little bit hopefully of a of a one-off, but it's certainly a, a black eye on the league. I think that people always bring up players the players are making so much money. You think about like LeBron James, why in the world he's making 40 some, whatever it is, million dollars a year. Is he going to go over or under his points prop to make what? $20,000. Like you also can't bet that much on these individual markets. So it really doesn't make sense for any of the players on that capacity. I think obviously for referees, it's a little different. But much like with baseball, where they're reviewing umps and grading them, there's the same thing going on in the NBA. I think there's a lot more scrutiny on it than there was necessarily back with the Tim Donahue. And also, I think with legalized sports betting, there's a lot more scrutiny on every single play, every single assist, every single rebound. All of this matters in some wager or some same game parlay or something else. And so... If there's some issue somewhere, the internet will ferret it out <laughs> rather quickly, too. So, again, I, there's always going to be potential bad actors in any field. Um, you know, if there is some other sports betting scandal that comes up, everyone will point to the fact that it's because of sports betting legalization. That's not really the case. It just will have happened with sports betting legalization, you know, in 35 plus U.S. states there's always going to be somebody looking to make some money in, you know, quickly uh, in a way that's not legal. That's just kind of the, <laughs> the human nature, whether that's the stock market or sports betting or crypto or any of these other places. So I, I think, you know, whether or not that happens in the near future, I'm sure the legalization of sports betting will be uh, will be blamed. But I don't think there's as big an issue or, or I don't have as much of a concern, certainly with kind of the refs. I think it's one of the more difficult things to handicap. You see that in the NFL every week with their missed calls or baseball, some ball that should have been a strike or vice versa. They aren't robot umps. They are humans. They are going to make mistakes, which could benefit you as a better or hurt you as a better as well. Yeah. And I think it's um, a lot of great points there. I think it's going back to kind of the human psychology aspect of it, where 
especially if you are on the opposing end of a bad call. It mm-hmm. seems like it's human nature to say, oh, well, the game is rigged. You know, uh, like, you know, last night, uh, you know, the Eagles-Bills game, there's that one uh, PI that wasn't called on digs that, you know, blew up on Twitter. And so it's easy to say, oh, well, the, it, right. And it's easy to say, okay, well, the game is rigged, right? There's something going on here. There's some sort of conspiracy why they, you know, why, why it wasn't called. Um, so I think that's that human psychology element of it that's super interesting that you alluded to earlier, which is, again, trying to attribute fault to someone um, and to always say, well, you know, you know, as a Bills fan, the Bills are a better team, but ugh, those damn refs screwed us again. Um, so, I yeah, don't know. not, it, not it, to go too deep into my, uh, you know, psychology degree, uh, but no, please do. it's basically a, an internal ex- internal attribution versus external attribution. Right. And so if I pick the Bills, well, I couldn't possibly be wrong because I picked them and I am a winning better and I'm successful at betting. So it couldn't be my issue, an internal attribution. It must be someone else's fault, right? It's Josh Allen's fault. It's the ref's fault. It's the weather. Those are external factors. So that's kind of the difference between those two and something that, yes, why when there's a bad beat, like we're looking for somebody else to blame, basically. Right. Ben, talk to me a little bit about, um, so as a casual fan, right, I'll go on the ESPN app or, or whatever, and I'll see, for example, the Niners are favored by three this week in Philadelphia. And maybe I'll see that line and, you know, I won't put much thought into it. Maybe I'll say, oh, the Niners are favored. Nice. Or maybe I'll ask, you know, why are they favored? Or, you know, I wonder what Vegas is thinking with this line. What what does Vegas think about when they set these lines and what's a little bit of maybe behind the scenes of how these lines get set? Do they look at analytics? Do they, is it, I mean, what, what's kind of the story there? Yeah. So it, it varies uh, very much from sports book to sports book. Um, and generally the way that it works is there is an opening line that is set. And in some places for college football, for example, a lot of times that's at Circa which is a sports book here downtown. Um, sometimes those are set offshore and somebody sets it and then a book in, excuse me, in uh, Las Vegas or somewhere else copies that and then betters bet into that market. And basically it gets moved into kind of in a, an efficient place uh, after a little while. <clears throat> and so that's why you see kind of professional sports bettors generally betting let's say NFL, right? We just are in, we're going into week 13. Week 12 happened on Sunday, on Sunday afternoon, West Coast, uh, or Sunday evening, East Coast. The lines are released for next week's games. Most people are still watching the current games going on. The professionals are already looking at those games, comparing them to their numbers and betting into those, which are moving those lines kind of in one way or the other. Some sports books have a third party. So they just say, we're going with Ben Fox Consulting. And Ben Fox Consulting says that the 49ers line should be 49ers minus two and a half at the Eagles. And we post that line. Some are comparing three people or four people. And they'll say, Joe, what do you have? I have 49ers minus two. What do you have? 49ers minus three. What do you have? 49ers minus two. All right. Well, I think it should be two and a half. Boom. 49ers minus two and a half. And it can be as quick as a one minute or less conversation. Um, Some books like Circa will set, they'll have lower limits. In other words, lower amounts that they will accept to be wagered. They will set a line. And then depending on where the action comes in, they'll move quickly off of that line to get to what they would, what the market would kind of deem the correct number. So it depends kind of by, by book. but you're generally going to see a lot more movement on kind of Sunday, Sunday night, Monday morning. Then you're going to see Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Most of that is probably going to be due to injuries or quarterbacks um, or potential influential groups then deciding, hey, we're going to go in on this game. We're going to go in on this game. Um, so that's a little bit kind of of how the lines are set. Um, but generally, yeah, as as People like to say they're usually set in uh, places far away from Vegas and then they get kind of, uh, you know, hammered into shape uh, and then 
they're they're everywhere certainly and and some of the bigger national books as well don't have a presence actually out here in Las Vegas so it it depends it's a little you know it's the easiest way to say Vegas says this sometimes it's a little bit of a misnomer because some of the books aren't actually in Vegas or the line was set before Vegas but that's a little bit kind of in the behind the scenes of how it works you talked about you know professional betters, and I would venture to say that most people who bet on sports are probably you know casual fans, um, maybe casual betters. And so, what is the difference between a quote unquote professional better and just someone who bets casually? Like how much more effort are these professional betters putting into their picks? I mean, I think, again, if we go back to the broad definition kind of of a professional better as one, someone who is uh, relying on this as their sole source of income, and then two, somebody who over the long term has won, and they would say beats what they say the closing line is. Uh, and what that means is basically you're getting closing line value. You are betting a game at a number better than it closes at, right? So for example let's say the 49ers-Eagles uh, game, in some places, I think, opened uh, Eagles minus one, or in other words, 49ers plus one. If professional bettors like the 49ers, and some did, you could get 49ers plus one, right? Well, currently, that's 49ers minus two and a half. So you have a much better chance of winning, even though it doesn't seem like it because it's all under three. So the casual better is going to say, well, they'll win by a field goal. What's the big difference? If you keep having those levels of difference where you're getting multiple points on the point spread and multiple bets, you're going to win in the in the long term. So that's what they call beating the closing line. If the 49ers Eagles game closed at minus two and a half, um, you know, we'll, we'll see which way it goes. It's trending upwards towards 49ers minus three as opposed to vice versa earlier in the week so that's you know the the early direction at least the line's moving in but for professional betters it's just like anything else there's a ton of research generally there's a model in some capacity they have power ratings right so they have you know when those lines come out sunday night they're not looking at it and going oh 49ers plus one like feels to me a little short, right? They're comparing their, this is the power rating of this team. This is this team. This is how much home field advantage is worth. We're factoring in these couple of injuries, right? Lane Johnson for the Eagles. Is he going to play? Is he not going to play? Certain other players like that. Uh, is Jalen Hurts at 100%, etc. Coming up with their number and comparing that number to the market number. And if there's a certain difference, they will make that bet. And that's kind of how a lot of people go at it. Um, and there, there's certainly a lot of ways to skin a cat, but generally there's a lot more, I guess, hard data and time and effort and uh, the scientific method behind it, as opposed to kind of, I'm going to toss together a three team to five team to 10 team parlay uh, because these two legs can't lose. And then this one definitely can't lose. So now I'm, you know, on the fourth or fifth leg. It's just a very kind of a def very different mindset. And also knowing, I think, psychologically how to handle the ups and downs, with even, up, even when you are getting the closing line value, getting the best of the number, making a bunch of good bets, you are going to lose. And the best bettors are winning. You know, you have to win just over 52% of the time with the minus 110 big to be profitable. I think it's like 52.3%. So if you're hitting at 53%, you're making money, assuming all your bets are, are minus 110. That's, it's, I think if you ask most people on the street, they would assume professional bettors are winning 70, 75, 80% of the time. There's nothing, you know, nothing like that with those types of bets. So I think it's that understanding as well of just the grind, the ups, the downs, and, uh, the commitment as well that it takes, and then the focus. You you can't be a jack of all trades, master of none. You really have to focus on what are what is the sport or what are the parts of a sport I'm going to hit. Is that NHL player props? Is that WNBA? Is that 
NHL, uh, NFL uh, first quarter totals? Is it whatever it is, people tend to find a specific area they think they have an edge and then really focus on that. There are very few professionals that are betting NFL, college football, NBA, NHL. They just, there isn't enough time to do it on a professional level. It's funny, speaking of parlays, um, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there picking your, your 10 teamer or, you know, like yours, I think I saw one over the weekend. It was like four players to score two plus touchdowns, right? When you're picking mm-hmm. it, you're like, dude, this is, this is easy. You know, Bijan Robinson, he'll, he'll score twice, you know, or, you know, Keenan Allen, he'll score twice. And it all seems great in your head. And then it, you know, it doesn't hit and you're like, ah, like where, where did I go wrong? What happened? Um, I want to stick to kind of the psychology aspect of all of this a little bit, Ben, especially because you're, I mean, that is what you, you know, part of your uh, degree in college. And I think it's fascinating some of the psychological tricks that we play on ourselves when it comes to betting. Um, but I want to ask you and then, and to see if maybe you can lead us through some of those, um, I guess, pitfalls that we have, uh, or that might just be pitfalls of a like human nature when it comes to betting. Like why, why does most of the public suck at betting? I mean, simply it's because we like to bet a little to win a lot, mm. right? That That's the basic nature of it. If I bet $5, I don't want to win $4.50. That's not that exciting, right? right. <laughs> Why would I want to do that? I want to win $50,000 or I want to win $300 or all of these things. So that's basically where you lead to all of these same game parlays and multiple leg parlays and bets and and all of these things. But look, I'm guilty of it. And I know that I shouldn't do it. And it's very easy to do, right? You start putting together a parlay and you say, okay, well, this is going to hit and this is going to hit and this can't lose, but it's still like minus 130. So I need better odds, right? I'd like to really get it at plus 150. Oh, if I add this and I add now I'm at plus 400, like, man, that'll be great when that wins but you're making it much, much more, much less likely to actually win, right? If you just individually bet all five of those legs and you won four of them, you would be, you would win money. You would be profitable Um, unless you have, you know, you're betting on, I don't know, USC football to when they're a 35 point favorite and the money line is super high. But for the most part, you're going to be profitable doing that. It's just, we don't, think that way because it's not really exciting. So I think it's just that shift of thinking of sports betting almost and like it's like the stock market too, right? When you have options trading, which I specifically stay away from because I do not know enough to do it, you can make a lot more money in a short period of time. You can also lose a lot more money in a short period of time. The nice upside about sports betting is that if I put in a $5 20 team parlay, I can only lose $5, right? There's not some max amount here unless it's points betting, which is a different category altogether. I can only lose $5, but I can win, you know, almost some, there's not really a maximum amount if I tack on as many legs as you want to. Um, It's really the max of what the sports book will, will allow, but it's just very, very unlikely to happen. So if you think about it more kind of like, almost a mutual fund or something where you're looking to add slowly over time, you're a lot more likely to be successful. I think it's very difficult, especially on Twitter, because you see seemingly everybody won this parlay, won this parlay, look at this 17 leg one that hit all of these. You just have to remember that those aren't very likely to happen and you're not seeing all of the losing ones that one came in that weekend or two that that specific person who also won that, you know, bet um, lost in the same weekend. So generally if somebody is placing, you know, a $500 four leg, uh, two touchdowns each parlay, that's not the only parlay that they're betting. They're doing multiple ones with multiple players across multiple teams. And yes, you would come out ahead if you hit one, $500 one that won $20,000, like it's likely you're ahead for that weekend. But it is also greatly likely that in the medium to long term, you will be down. 
And the way that we can see this is a lot of the different um, states, states release basically the sports betting numbers on a monthly basis. New Jersey, for example, in October won 3% on football overall. They won 21% on parlays. So again, those aren't only NFL parlays. They're college football, there's NBA, there's, but the general category of parlays, they're winning a whole lot more than they are with, with sports betting and, you know, in the individual sports. Um, and then they're winning so much more as a category. So parlays are generally going to be a losing proposition. They're a lot of fun, but as long as you keep it responsible in those ways and kind of have realistic expectations, I think you can then kind of go from there. But if you put in $5 and have a 17 leg parlay, you're just not going to win. You know, it's very, very, very unrealistic that it's going to happen. And you can't really feel bad when it doesn't happen. Uh, That's the point of the parlay is to make it very close to winning, but not actually win. Right. So my takeaway is boring is better. That that is the if you if you want to talk about a strategy when it comes to sports betting, oftentimes boring is better. Stay away from the parlays unless you want to have a little bit of fun and maybe try your luck at, you know, picking five two touchdown scores this next weekend. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say whatever number you have in your head of the number of legs it should be, probably subtract two from that and then go from there and and see and if you really feel like you have a five leg parlay and three of them can't miss do the three legger and see if those hit you know or bet the three legger and the five leg or the three four and the five for smaller amounts or divvy it up in some way don't just kind of all right i got my one parlay i'm going to put as many legs as i can in it you mentioned points betting what is that so points betting is um, was brought to the U.S. by the company PointsBet, which was then acquired by Fanatics and is being integrated with them. It's kind of the sports betting equivalent of options trading, I guess. Um, and it's coming from somebody who is not an expert in options trading in any way. But in essence, you can maximize your return or maximize your edge um, based on what they call points betting. So for example, tonight, the Vikings are a three-point favorite over the Bears. If I really think that the Vikings are going to win the game by a lot of points, which as a Vikings fan, I do not, I could say, okay, I'm going to take the Vikings basically as a, you know, uh, as points betting or on points bet, however they want to say it. You can put in kind of a max win and a max loss amount and a dollar per point, right? And so if I just bet 20 bucks on the Vikings to cover at minus three and the Vikings win by 10, I win my $20 bet. Let's just say at minus 110 odds, so you win $18, whatever it is. If I do it via points betting and they win by 10 points, I get that seven point difference times the amount of dollars I said in points betting, right? So if I said $100 per point, then I could win $700 based off of that bet. However, if they also lost by 20 points, the same thing occurs where I would only lose $20 in that original bet. I could lose a lot more if they end up losing. So it's just a higher risk, higher reward uh, type of type of bet. But if you really feel like, hey, I have an advantage and I want to press that, right? It's some basketball game and you feel like the spread's minus three, but this team's going to really crush the other team. It's a different way to attack it. Sounds dangerous. I uh, will probably <laughs> stay away from that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess that brings me to my next point. And it's, I think it's a good way to wrap up kind of the betting portion of, of this podcast because uh, I really want to get to some of your NFL draft experience and and working with Todd McShay and um, and uh, and Mel Kuyper and all those guys. Um, I pulled just from FanDuel. Um, it was the first sports book that I found. Uh, but I think it probably speaks to just the general 
kind of um, you know rise of the sports betting industry the last couple of years. So um, FanDuel put out its money wagered. Uh, so how much money was wagered on its site uh, and through the app? So 2020, 5.45 billion. 2021, 13.95 billion. And then 2022, 29.12 billion. So from 2020 to 2022, uh, pretty much a 6x increase in the amount of money that was wagered on FanDuel. Um, we talked a lot about some of the intricacies of sports betting, but in general, from your perspective, where do you see this industry going as a whole? Yeah, and, and I would say, too, those 2020 numbers are depressed greatly by COVID and a, a lack of a lack of sports uh, too, but the 2023 numbers are going to be are going to be giant. Um, it will only keep increasing. We still don't have California and uh, all of Florida, really, and Texas kind of fully online as well. So I think the market will keep increasing. Um, if there's one thing that we know, it's that people like to gamble, whether it's on sports, whether it's on cards, whether it's on dice. Is just kind of part of part of human nature. It's that risk element. It's that feeling like you're winning something for nothing, even though you are putting up a bet, uh, kind of against it. And that same, you know, feeling like money won feels better than money earned, right? It's like if if you place if you bet five thousand dollars and win, it probably feels better getting that amount than getting your biweekly check from your from your job, right? It just it feels different. It's like I did this, I beat somebody, I was smarter. Um, so there's that psychological aspect to it. I think it will continue to grow. I think that the real question is just kind of the educational aspect, the responsible gaming aspect. Um, it's something that's always been kind of important to me, both at, at the ESPN and, and at VEASAN, is just really trying to help people understand sports betting as a whole, like I said, not a get rich quick scheme um, and just kind of what you're getting into. Cause I think like anything, like we saw with NFTs, right. Or crypto or there, there's definitely that FOMO and people see on, you know, on Twitter and, <clears throat> and other places. Uh, oh my God, look at this person just cash this parlay. Like I have a car payment, man, it would be great if I, also did that and then you start wagering more than you should and now you're not paying off your car in fact you just lost two thousand dollars it'd be really good to have for those payments and, and other things so i think it's just making sure people know kind of what it is it's it's an activity there are very very few of us that will be good enough or want to frankly put in the time to be good enough to be professionals or have that as your sole source of income or, or making money over the longer term. So I think just recognizing kind of where sports betting, you know, probably fits into some people's uh, life priorities, I guess, and just the inherent, you know, risk and reward from it. And that it's a, a recreational activity that is, you know, being, being legalized, being taxed and all that is good for states, but also just that, it is very difficult and you kind of want to at least start small and, you know, get to know what you're doing before you're kind of putting up too much money. Um, and I think that's, that's just the biggest thing as well as everyone is different, you know, unit sizes that you would like to wager. Generally, if you have a bankroll, which is the amount of money you put in, say, all right, I'm starting with a hundred dollars. That's my bankroll. People's bets are generally one to 2% of their bankroll right? That's how much it should be. So if I started with $100, doesn't sound exciting, but each one of my bets should be $1 or $2 if you want to keep that bankroll. If you start throwing in $20 parlays, you might have five bets and then you don't have your bankroll anymore. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but I think uh, it will only keep expanding. There'll be more and more content out there. There's a higher quantity of sports betting content than certainly when I was you know, in charge of ESPN Chalk in 2014, 2015. I think there's the lowest quality of sports betting content. That's something that I'd like to see um, continue to get raised. I think that sometimes the lowest hanging fruit and the easiest sports betting content to produce 
tends to get a lot of clicks and a lot of views. And that doesn't mean it's good content. It just means that it got seen by a lot of people or someone had a big following um, or all of this stuff. So there's a long way we can go, certainly in terms of sports betting content. Um, and it's it's a difficult genre and industry to have content for, uh, for a, a number of different reasons. But I think there's a long way certainly to go with that. And I, I think we'll just continue to see kind of sports betting expand and, and hopefully expand in a good and a healthy way as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, you brought up a point that I think could probably be a podcast, you know, in it itself. And that's the whole content part of this. I know you're heavy on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so, and you've been around a lot of people who have produced high quality content uh, for a while. Um, but, you know, especially when it comes to even podcasts, right? Whatever seems to, like you mentioned, get the most amount of views on TikTok or Instagram reels, or you know, I think short form video really kind of disrupted content in a way where, a lot of it is optimized for, again, kind of that quick dopamine hit, um, you know, that whatever, again, kind of uh, captures attention the quickest is typically what does well. And so I'm in agreement with you there. And you see it, especially with podcasting as well, where, you know, some of the best content doesn't always rise to the top. It's it's the content that, you know, people can send to their friends and say, oh, my God, look at what, you know, so-and-so said, or, you know, I can't believe this. So, um, but like I said, that I feel like could be a podcast um, on itself. So um, Ben, I want to talk a little bit about the NFL draft as we wrap up this episode. Um, you work closely with Todd McShay. You worked with Mel Kuyper. Um, what were they like to work with and what was just your overall experience working the draft? Yeah, the, the draft was great. It's one of my kind of favorite memories, certainly from, from working at ESPN and, I think just always an example of, you know, if you are at a place and I was, you know, lucky enough to be at ESPN for uh, 10 plus years, always ask the question kind of of, could I be working on that? Should I be working on that? Right. And you can't do it with everything, certainly. But I think that in that same way with sports betting uh, and with ESPN Insider, which is now kind of merged with ESPN Plus, you know, there was an NFL draft presence, um, but there wasn't really anyone managing Mel Kuyper. He kind of had his big board. He dumped it onto ESPN Insider, which was a homepage that nobody managed. It was just a lot of people were ESPN Insiders. They probably didn't even know they'd signed up back in 2008, 2009. And there wasn't really kind of a, as we said, a captain of the ship. And so we were able to kind of you know, the ESPN Insider Group was able to be kind of that that captain and have a independent, you know, editor uh, and writer as well for Mel and then for Todd McShay as well to kind of help them produce their content because there's so much that goes into that. Todd is running Scout Sync as well. They're, you know, pouring through all of this tape in addition to him as a broadcaster going weekly to all these college football games and prepping for that. So. There's so much that they do, they need someone to help kind of translate some of those notes into, into articles, uh, be able to send it back to them for notes, kind of work with them on that. And then just being able to be at, you know, the kind of culmination of all of that throughout the year was going to the actual NFL drafts. Uh, I was lucky enough to start when they were going to Radio City Music Hall, which was, you know... Nice to do from uh, being in New York, didn't have to travel far, certainly uh, from my house in Brooklyn and just kind of, you know, some of those favorite nights and, and early mornings, you know, because Mel would be on for the entire broadcast, obviously. And then we would kind of talk to him about the, you know, winners and losers, let's say for round one. And then they would go, you know, he'd go off to bed or something and we would produce the article, send it out. Or the draft grades is the same thing. We would talk about all the teams and go through the picks. And Mel would say, I think it, you know, this is more like a B plus. And we'd say, well, what about this? I, I kind of feel like it's a B. And there was kind of a, a small group that's, you know, going through and talking about these grades, uh, which was always just, you know, I think one of the most fun, whatever that was, half an hour, 45 minutes, hours of the year. Uh, and then, you know, there's kind of we were at the hotel lobby, you know, 
typing out and, and doing all these notes over hours and hours because there are 32 teams and, you know, there's a lot that goes into uh, that file and other files. So it was always uh, a ton of work, but a great, uh, a great experience and just something kind of that was always fun, um, especially before the draft started. It was always kind of my favorite time because there wasn't really anything to do. All the work had been done before. The prep had been done. You could kind of be around the set and BS with some people and, um, you know, walk around the stage and, and do all that. And it was it was just a very different experience, kind of the quiet before, the calm before the storm uh, as well. But the, the drafts were great. It was a ton of fun to um, be there along with, you know, those those experts and kind of see what they do. And, you know, M- Mel is a machine. I mean, he does not go to the bathroom. He does not need anything. He might need some water. He has his notes, but for the most part, he's just point the camera at him and, and he's good to go for hours on end for all these prospects and heights, weights, and what he did in this game. And it's, it, it is very, uh, very remarkable kind of to see there. I think there's certain people that are meant to do certain things. And, and Mel was definitely meant to do, uh, meant to do the NFL draft. And, and Todd was great to work with as well and had a, a giant binder of, of content that he produced along with a couple other people at, at Scout Sync that they would distribute every year. And, uh, I was really glad he was able the last couple of years to get on the main set as well and do some stuff for ABC and um, and kind of get on there too because he he'd been waiting a long time as well for uh, for his shot and you know uh, unfortunately he's he's not currently with ESPN and hopefully he's uh, finding finding a new another new gig soon I know he'll he'll land somewhere great. I've been I've been dying to ask this question because it's been it's been on my mind recently, mostly because of the whole Bryce Young, CJ Stroud, um, uh, I guess disparity you could call it. Um, CJ Stroud is looking, you know, many were were uh, clamoring for for MVP, uh, and Bryce Young is uh, not looking too hot in Carolina, and it got me thinking about just how many misses there are in the NFL draft, especially at the top and especially with top quarterbacks. Um, I don't have the exact statistics in front of me, but it seems like some of these top quarterbacks, you know, teams miss on them more often than, than they hit on a franchise quarterback. Why do you, why do you think that is? And why do you think it's so difficult to project, uh, I guess that transition from college to the NFL when it comes to quarterbacks specifically? So there's a, I think uh, Mel or Todd would be better suited to uh, have a a full answer. But I think from my perspective, a lot of it is that you're projecting a ton about an 18 to 21 year old generally, um, you know, man, right? And so you're not only projecting their skills, but it's also their body. Will they grow? What's their diet habits? Will their arm get better? Can you improve accuracy, right? Like, Jake Locker was a guy who had all the physical tools or Christian Ponder, unfortunately for the Vikings looked great. As they say at the combine in the underwear Olympics, throwing the ball everywhere, strong arm, you know, Jake Locker, same thing, but had a terrible completion percentage in college and just never could improve on that in the NFL. Whereas Josh Allen, for example, same thing, bad completion percentage. You could say he didn't have the talent. Some talent went to the NFL he felt like he had to make some throws that maybe shouldn't have made, et cetera, et cetera. But he's gotten better. Now he's regressed a bit in terms of turnovers, but he is clearly very, very talented and has that arm talent um, and has improved his accuracy, whereas a lot of people aren't able to do that. And you also have people like Johnny Manziel, right, who are talented in college, also have a wide receiver like Mike Evans, who if you throw it in the general zip code, he's going to catch the ball. and probably made Johnny Manziel look better than vice versa. And also it's just a different game in college. Are you playing in a pro style offense? Is it a spread offense? Is it something where it's just the coach says to throw the ball to this receiver and you throw the ball to that receiver. Whereas the NFL, you have to read the coverage, identify linebackers. What are they in? What are we in? What can we check to? Who's going to win their matchup? There's so much more that goes into it. So some quarterbacks are also just, ahead that's why they call running the pro style offense right they're already 
mentally ahead of some others who might be physically ahead. And so there's just kind of so much that goes into it. And then it also depends on the team you're going to, right? Derek Carr was a talented quarterback who went to a terrible, or excuse me, David Carr, uh, went to a terrible Houston Texans team, right? Got sacked a million times and kind of never was the same. I think Bryce Young is better than he's showing. That Carolina team is awful. I've seen some of their games. They've, they've covered one game so far this season. They're one eight and two, I think, against the spread. You know, you also can't throw the ball to anyone if nobody's open, right? And he doesn't have Tank Dell and some other wide receivers that C.J. Stroud has. There's no doubt C.J. Stroud has looked a lot better. I think it's fair to say if you switch them in terms of the teams, the Panthers would probably have more than one win with C.J. Stroud. He's definitely looked a lot better than Bryce Young. There's just a lot of unknowns and variables that that go into it. And then it's also a lot of coaching as well, right? Sometimes if you get the right player with the wrong coaching staff, there could be something that just doesn't fit or there's an injury, right? With RG3, one of the best rookie seasons for a quarterback we've ever seen, ends up probably probably playing in a playoff game he shouldn't, gets hurt, He's never really the same. It's that same type of thing. You just don't really know. So there's so many variables that that go into it. There's very, very few just like this is a Andrew Luck, right? Or this this is a John Elway or this guy just, you know, Matthew Stafford. You just can't miss, really. And they're just, they're go- they Peyton Manning, right? Like barring something really unforeseen, they should be, a, you know, a top five pick. And Mel has that one of one of the favorite articles that uh, that I like to do is kind of why those guys are wrong. Where did they miss on somebody? Right. Like Ryan Leaf had a top 10 ranking. I think it was last year or the year before they did the article. Ryan Leaf was one of the 10 highest rated quarterbacks Mel has in the past, you know, let's just call it 40 years. Right. Like he was immensely talented. There were some other issues that came to the surface um, and he didn't work out, but it's not because of the lack of talent necessarily. It could be coaching, off the field things, the team. So there's just a lot basically that goes into it, and it's really, really hard to project. I think it's something that makes it fun, but also, you know, it's why we spend so much time debating and mock drafting and doing all this stuff. There's also just a lot of luck involved too. And ultimately, you're not throwing a dart at the top of the draft. You're throwing a very selective, uh, you know, highly intelligent dart with a lot of research behind it. But it is still a guess, ultimately, because you're not drafting somebody in your prime. You're drafting them basically hoping that they will grow into this franchise quarterback. Yeah. I think my my guy Brock is a perfect testament of someone who just ended up in the perfect situation with the perfect coach, with the perfect scheme to maximize his strengths. And I think it goes to what a lot of what you were saying, you know, when it comes to being drafted into the right situation with the right coach um, in, into a good organization. Um, I think it's fascinating. I think for us as fans, it could be tough, um, you know, kind of uh, when our uh, quarterbacks don't pan out. But I, I do agree with you. I think it does add a lot of mystique uh, to, to the final product. Ben, I know we're coming up on an hour here. Um, so one last question for you. You did a uh, against the spread, uh, I guess you could say analysis for NFL quarterbacks. And really, really quickly, I want you uh, to just go through what what that actually was. What did you take a look at and and what list did you compile at the end? Yeah, so before the season, um, I kind of came up with a, I guess, against the spread ranking for all 32 starting quarterbacks. And there's a bunch of factors that kind of go into it. It's up on USA Today for the win uh, section for people who want to check it out or Google it. But it's basically the how much is this starting quarterback worth over the backup if he went out, right? So Patrick Mahomes is healthy on a Thursday, and all of a sudden he gets the flu and he can't play. And the black the backup, I believe, is Blaine Gabbert. Um, how much is he? How much would the spread shift, right? So if it was Chiefs minus ten what would the line now be with Gabbard in? And uh, Mahomes was the top with seven, just over seven and a half points. Josh Allen second, uh, tied with Joe Burrow at 6.75 points. 
And then Justin Herbert, 6.7, and Aaron Rodgers, 5.75, which might be even higher given what we've seen from the Jets this season um, from their multitude of backup quarterbacks. But I think it's just an interesting uh, nugget to have. I asked a bunch of bookmakers, I asked, I think, eight bookmakers and then averaged their responses together because uh, some people are going to be a little higher, some people are going to be a little lower to kind of just get a sense. It's something that, especially in live betting as well, if that's the case where a quarterback goes out in the middle of the game and you kind of want to see, okay, how's this going to affect the team? That's a, a reference point. But it's just another, I think, interesting article. It's something generally people, you can't really do unless you're asking the bookmakers. You could theoretically come up with it on your own, probably based off of an analysis of the lines, but it'd be a little, a lot more tricky to do. Um, So it's just an interesting piece of content, I think, and something that people are always curious about, but takes a little bit of effort and work um, to kind of actually produce. And then, you know, it's always interesting to talk to the bookmakers. One of them said before the season, he would have taken Stroud over Bryce Young. He wasn't that impressed with Bryce Young. He didn't really understand why that is, and he looks pretty prescient as we uh, sit here in week 13 today. Yeah, and it, we'll include the link um, to the article that Ben mentioned. I highly suggest you go check it out. It is uh, one of the more unique pieces of content that I've come across. Um, I haven't seen anybody else do this. I think there's a lot of really interesting tidbits um, in there and a lot of interesting rankings You know, before the season. Uh, you know, Mac Jones is at 22 um, and Brock Purdy's at 23 in that ranking. So uh, I think, you know, maybe now, given how things have played out, that might change. But again, I think it's interesting looking at it and and I guess a different way to value quarterbacks as well. And then you also did an NBA one, which I would love to get into uh, maybe at another uh, time and date, um, but basically a similar story as the NFL rankings Um and then for the NBA one, you know, Jokic first, Embiid second, Giannis third, uh, Luka fourth, Steph five. So that's your top five when it comes to the NBA version um, of these rankings. So I'll link both of those in the description uh, of this podcast. Like I said, I highly suggest you go check those out. Ben, as we wrap up this episode, um, I do one thing with with all of my guests, and that's asking for a piece of advice that you would like to leave for the next guest. And so... We had Aaron Schatz on prior uh, to you coming on. Uh, so Aaron, a lot of analytics work, uh, invented DVOA, uh, analytics fanatic. I, I know Aaron well. <laughs> As I'm yep. sure you know. Yeah, fantastic. Um, fantastic guest, fantastic conversation. And the piece of advice that he left for you, not knowing that it was going to be you uh, next on the podcast, was uh, be nice to everybody around you. Uh, you never know when your reputation might come into play. And so, Ben, we ask you, what is one piece of advice you would like to leave for our next guest who, unfortunately, you don't know who that is going to be? That's that's a great one. I, I would have uh, had, had something similar as well. I think I would say uh, try and take advantage of all of the opportunities that are, are given to you. Um, and I would say respectfully push the envelope. Um, when you're at certain places, right? You never know if you ask somebody about a certain assignment or a certain, um, you know, potentially reach out in a nice way to somebody, whether that's via DM or email, asking about something or to come on a podcast. Uh, I think, you know, treating people with manners and and respect um, and in, in the same way kind of that he said, just treating people well is, is a good way to go. But I would say that just try and take advantage of, of the opportunities. Um, and you never know where they might lead certainly. And that same thing too, you never know who you might be working with as well. So try and keep the personal and professional separate because it is, it is a small industry um, and things travel quickly. <laughs> Fantastic advice. Uh, and we'll be sure to leave that for our next guest, Ben, this has been an amazing conversation. I've enjoyed truly every minute of it. We are very thankful for your time here today. Um, best of luck to your Minnesota Vikings tonight. I think they pull it out against the against the Bears, and 
Um, you know, listen, if, if the Vikings and Niners end up meeting up in the playoffs, um, I'm sure I'll send you a DM or two with some playful uh, trash talk. So You, you won't have to uh, worry too much. Don't worry. You guys will win. <laughs> ben, before we sign off, anything you'd like to plug? Any of your socials? Anything like that? No, I'm just uh, at bfox22, uh, which is F-A-W-K-E-S on uh, Twitter and on Instagram. And um, yeah, all my, most of my stuff's on uh, USA Today for the win section as well. And certainly if anyone has any questions about sports betting or, or things they were afraid to ask because they think they'll be dumb, my, my DMs are open. I'm always uh, happy to answer questions. Amazing. Ben, thank you again for your time. Um, all of the links will be in the description to Ben's uh, social media accounts, as well as all the content that he puts out. He is a great follow on Twitter. Um, I especially love your um, your tweets about, um, I guess, who the majority of the public is betting on. And then your follow-up tweet, uh, where it basically shows that, you know, hey, you know, majority of the public was maybe on, uh, you know, is maybe on the Vikings tonight and, and they lost out. Um, so I just, I, I love your Twitter content. Uh, so keep it up. Ben, thanks again for your time. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk again real soon. Sounds good. Anytime.